Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be disturbing, frightening, and in even some cases, offensive. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Hey, there is very, very adult content ahead, and you have been warned. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I'm still your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the weird, wonderful, unexplained, eerie, scary, and downright unbelievable. There will be tales of ghosts, murder, supernatural beings, and unexplained mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, Relax and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, we're going to be taking a bit of a turn from our normal excursions. And today, we're going to discuss a topic that has always sparked my interest, and I do hope that it sparks yours. Near-Death Experiences. There's a new movie coming out that is deep into this subject, and more than one of our listeners asked me to do an episode on this subject. So, you know what I say, majority rules. As always, we will be playing our drinking game, but again, only for those of you that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. So, this is such a dark and deep subject I decided I was going to lighten it up a little bit by using some Walking Dead themed cocktails. And there will be a link provided in the notes. Now on to the business end of this deal. Well, every time I say near death, that will be a single shot. And every time I say either heaven or hell, that'll be a double shot. All right, now that we got the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. The mystery of death haunts the living, but real understanding of it has always proved elusive. Researchers say new studies of people who have come close to death have provided insights into the nature of death and show that it actually could be less painful and less frightening and actually more peaceful than we've generally conceived it to be. These conjectures are derived from near-death experiences of people who came close to death or were revived from a state of clinical death, usually after a painful accident or illness. Now, according to Kenneth Ring, a professor of psychology at the University of Connecticut, people undergo a brief but powerful thrust into a higher state of consciousness when they come close to death. Many people who reach this state describe their experiences in vivid detail. Many report the feeling of traveling through dark tunnels towards a bright light. A few even report floating above fields of yellow flowers. One definite finding of the research is the diminishing fear of death from those who have these experiences says Carlos Osis, former executive director of research at the American Society for Cycle Research in Manhattan and an author of a book on near-death experience. Dr. Osis and other researchers say people who have had such experience may help relatives or even friends face death themselves. Near-death experiences vary in length and intensity, but 
they follow roughly the same pattern. People who undergo them report feeling abrupt separation from their bodies and looking down upon themselves. Their pain dissolves, they say, and they are overwhelmed by an inexpressible peace and contentedness. Many say that they enter a tunnel of darkness and move towards a brilliant white light that emits warmth and love, that they are flooded with knowledge beyond their ordinary capabilities, and that they discern the pattern or the meaning of life. Sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? And interestingly enough, a Gallup poll reports that 8 million people have had near-death episodes and found that there's no relationship that exists between the experience and a person's religious or cultural background. And studies have shown that even children have had near-death experiences. John Magliaccio, a New York business executive for a publishing and consulting firm, had a near-death experience in 1968, where he almost drowned off the Jersey Shore. While swimming toward shore, he became overtired and said he felt himself leave his body and hang 500 feet in the air, like being in two places at one time, he said. He kept on swimming as he felt he was actually watching himself in the struggle to survive. After reaching shore and blacking out, He says, I just let go. I went straight into this blackness, traveling what seemed like a million miles a second. I went up into this great void. The only way I can describe it it is that I was part of everything in the universe. Everything fit together and made sense to me. The experience changed his attitude toward death, he said. A year before my before my grandmother had died and I went hysterical but when his grandfather died a year later I felt inappropriate everybody was upset but me according to Bruce Grayson an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Connecticut and editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies no psychological or psychological theory explains near-death experiences Some scientists have suggested that the dying secrete endorphins, or hormones, that act on the central nervous system to reduce pain and are associated with a runner's high. Endorphins cause effects comparable to those of morphine and could possibly be causing hallucinatory behavior. But people who have these experiences deny that they were simply hallucinations. As Mr. Migliaco says, it was a real experience. While experts say near-death experiences have been recorded for centuries, it's only in the past decade that they've begun to gain gain credibility in scientific circles. Leading the research is the International Association of Near-Death Studies, which Dr. Ring and several other researchers founded a few years ago, and is based at the University of Connecticut. According to Dr. Ring, near-death experiences are a catalyst for spiritual development. The individuals seem to become more self-confident, less materialistic, and more giving of themselves. People who have these experiences often believe that they have escaped death to fulfill a special mission in this lifetime. And such was the case of Virginia Cinder of I'm sorry, Virginia Cinder of Hampstead. Miss Cinder had a near-death experience in 1960 while suffering from uremia. She says, 
I knew I came back for a reason, but I had no idea what that reason was. But in the late 1970s, she began working with terminally ill patients and their families. By 1983, she said she realized it was her mission to open a hospice on Long Island. So, Mrs. Sender founded Long Island Foundation for Hospice Care and Research, Incorporated, which provides a range of counseling and support services to patients and their families. And she says, I now, I now know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Researchers say those who have had near-death experiences can share their views of death in order to comfort others. Geraldine DeVito of Mount Laurel, New Jersey, had a near-death experience in 1978 when she had an allergic reaction to medication. Two years later, her husband was diagnosed as having pancreatic cancer. He would die three years later. Mrs. DeVito believes she helped ease the pain that her husband would have otherwise suffered. She says, I knew there was nothing to fear, and I had that little glimpse into the life after death. So, near-death experiences are getting a lot of attention lately. You know, from that 2014 movie Heaven is for Real about a young boy who tells his parents that he has visited heaven while he was having emergency surgery, which, by the way, grossed a very respectable $91 million in the U.S., the book that it was based on was published in 2010 and has sold some 10 million copies and spent 206 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Two books by doctors, Proof of Heaven by Eben Alexander, who writes about a near-death experience he had while in a week-long coma brought on by meningitis, and To Heaven and Back by Mary C. Neal, who had her near-death experience while submerged in a river after a kayaking accident, have both spent 94 and 36 weeks respectively on the New York Times bestseller list. And there's a new upcoming movie from Disney called Breakthrough that stars the girl from This Is Us, what's her name, Chrissy Metz. It looks really interesting. I will tell you that it's heavily Christian-based, but it's interesting that this is having its moment, don't you see? Now, for those of us that are keeping track of the truth, though, the subject for The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, which was published in 2010, actually has admitted that he made the whole story up. So, yeah. But their stories are similar to those told in dozens, if not hundreds of books, and in thousands of interviews with near-death experiencers, or experiencers as they like to call themselves, in the past few decades. Though details and descriptions vary across cultures, the overall tenor of the experience is remarkably similar. Western near-death experiences are the most studied. Many of these stories relate the sensation of floating up and viewing the scene around one's unconscious body, spending time in a beautiful otherworldly realm, meaning spiritual beings, some will call them angels, and a loving presence that some call God. Encountering long-lost relatives or friends, recalling scenes from one's life, feeling a sense of connectedness to all creation, as well as a sense of overwhelming, transcendent love. And finally, being called, reluctantly, away from the magical realm and back into one's own body. Mere death, many near-death experiencers report that their experience did not feel like a dream or hallucination, but was, as they often describe it, more real than real life. 
they are profoundly changed afterward and tend to have trouble fitting back into their everyday life. Many embark on radical career shifts or even leave their spouses. Over time, the scientific literature that attempts to explain near-death experience as the result of physical changes in a stressed or dying brain has also commiserately grown. The causes posited include an oxygen shortage, imperfect anesthesia, and the body's neurochemical responses to trauma. Near-death experiencers dismiss these explanations as inadequate. The medical conditions under which near-death experience happens, they say, are too varied to explain a phenomenon that seems so widespread and so consistent. Some books by Sam Parnia and Pim Van Lommel, both physicians, describe studies published in peer-reviewed journals that attempt to pin down what happens during near-death experience under controlled experimental conditions. Parnia and his colleagues published results from the latest such study involving more than 2,000 cardiac arrest patients in um, October a few years ago. And the recent books by Mary Neal and Eben Alexander recounting their own near-death experience have lent a very spiritual view of them in a new outward respectability. Mary Neal was, a few years before her near-death experience, the director for spinal surgery at the University of Southern California. She's now in private practice, of course. Eben Alexander is a neurosurgeon who taught and practiced at several prestigious hospitals and medical schools, including Brigham Young and Women's and Harvard. I mean, come on, these are people that are physicians themselves, and they're telling you that they had a profound experience. It was Alexander who, who really upped the scientific stakes. He studied his own medical charts and came to the conclusion that he was in such a deep coma during his near-death experience and his brain was so completely shut down that the only way to explain what he felt and saw was that his soul had indeed detached from his body and gone on a trip to another world and that angels, God, and the afterlife are all as real as can be. I'm just going to say, pausing for a moment, I am in such deep shit. I know the rest of you are with me on this one because if all the religious shit is real, I am so fucked. Okay, back to the story. (laughs) Yet, even the skeptics rarely accuse experiences of inventing their stories from whole cloth. Though some of these stories may be fabrications and more more no doubt become embellished in the retelling, they're far too numerous and well documented to be dismissed altogether. It's also hard to ignore the accounts by respected physicians with professional reputations to protect. Even if the afterlife isn't real, the sensations of having been there, well, they certainly are. And there's nothing wrong with that. There is something about a near-death experience that makes them scientifically intriguing. While you can't really rely on an alien abduction or spiritual visitation taking place just when you've got your recording instruments handy and ready, many many near-death experiences happen when a person is surrounded by an arsenal of devices designed to measure every single thing about the body that human ingenuity has made us capable of measuring. The hero's journey is so pervasive in storytelling because it is so aspirational. 
It offers the possibility of escape and transformation. What's more, as medical technology continues to improve, it's bringing people back from even closer to the brink of death. A small lucky handful of people have made full or nearly full recoveries after spending hours with no breath or pulse, buried in snow or submerged in very cold water. Surgeons sometimes create these conditions intentionally, chilling patients' bodies or stopping their hearts in order to perform complex, dangerous operations. Recently, they have begun trying out such techniques on severely injured trauma victims, keeping them between life and death until their wounds can be repaired themselves. And all of this makes near-death experiences perhaps the only spiritual experience that we have a chance of investigating in a truly thorough scientific way. It makes them a vehicle for exploring the ancient human belief that maybe we're more than just meat suits. And it makes them a lens through which to peer at the workings of consciousness, one of the great mysteries of human existence, even for the most resolute materialist among us. All right, guys, we're going to take a little break here, and I'm going to let you digest all the facts about near-death experiences, because when we come back, I have a bunch of stories to share with you. So I thought this episode would be more about the stories and that you, my lovely heathens, get to judge for yourself what you think. So make sure you join me after the break. Welcome back, my heathens. So glad you came back. I'm really enjoying this episode and I hope that you are as well. Now, as I stated before the break, we are diving deep into the phenomena that is near-death experiences, but the elephant in the room is just aching to be heard, and I have a very small apartment, so if the elephant poops in the room, I'm going to have a big shit fit. So let's go ahead and ask that big question now. Is there life after death, or is there just blackness to greet us when we die? Well... The answer to that question depends very much on your upbringing and religious attitude. No one has a firm answer. There are those who have died on the operating table or have come very close to death, and they have made it back into our world. Their experiences are the very best accounts we have of what's waiting for us after the curtains close on our earthly lives. The stories that I have are equal parts hopeful, inspiring, and even some chilling. So, you've been warned. Now, let's dive into the deep end of the pool, my darlings, with our first story. And I'm just going to read them as they were written to me. I got stung by a nest of wasps right next door to my house. They stung me all over my head, neck, and behind my ears. Thirty-nine stings was what the doctor counted. I got home and was like, okay, I'm cool told my mom that I got stung by some bees, but I thought I was okay. She didn't seem to be very worried, so I decided to take a shower. In the shower, though, I began to feel dizzy, and my back started to hurt. I quickly turned the shower off and got on my clothes, and I began to feel even dizzier and dizzier. And when I came out of the bathroom, my mom looked at me and this look of horror on her face and told me to get into the car immediately. My face and head had swollen immensely. 
Between my house and the hospital, I started to lose consciousness. Everything I saw had a yellow tinge, and I suddenly felt very heavy and very tired. My breathing got very labored, but I didn't seem to care. I felt like I was just slipping away into sleep. I remember arriving at the hospital, and they didn't even bother with the registration. They threw my ass on a gurney and pushed me back to the back. As I was going back, I remember closing my eyes and thinking, I guess whatever happens, and then nothing. Some minutes later, I opened my eyes and a very large man was staring at me. He said, Bad news, you're going to feel completely fine within a couple of hours. You probably won't even get out of going to school tomorrow. You know what? He was right. Sucked. Alright, not much of a story there other than they blacked out. So, let's see if the next one's any better. The next one, surprisingly, is from an atheist. Atheist here. Bright light. I knew there were people waiting for me where the light was coming from. Absolute ecstasy was the feeling, and that's the best I can explain. Then, I remembered I had a a newborn baby and was instantly back. That's interesting. Somebody who doesn't believe in God and has a near-death experience like that makes you wonder. From a suicide victim. I had been very depressed for a while and decided it was time to end my life. I took a ton of pills and washed them down with a ton of rum. I'm just going to say ton is exaggerated here, but I think we both know what, what they're trying to say. While dead, I was in a completely dark area all alone. I found myself talking to a mysterious voice who told me that they were God. We talked for what felt like an entire lifetime. He told me that my heaven was this dark, secluded area where I could finally be at peace. He ended with telling me that I couldn't stay because I still had business to take care of. When I woke up, my body felt healthier than ever and I had this peace about me that hasn't gone away even still. I feel like I can remember what we spoke about. I just can't seem to put it into words. I equate it to trying to describe a new color to someone who's never seen colors before. Interesting. From the accident victim. When I was eight years old, I was run over by a car. I remember walking through this blue tunnel. At the end, there was this white light that everyone seems to talk about. Before I knew it, I was in the light. A disembodied hand reached out to me, and it was this warm, welcoming feeling. Still, I knew I didn't want to go. It wasn't as if I was scared of what was waiting on the other side. I just felt it wasn't time for me to go in there yet. And I remember saying that I wasn't ready yet. I woke up in the ambulance with the EMT hovering over me. Combined with the darkness of the ambulance, I thought my refusal to go with whoever offered me their hand has led me to a fate far worse than just dying. Interesting. From somebody who suffered from an illness. I got sepsis from tools used over at a dentist's office. I went to the dentist feeling fine, happy that I finally got the work done that I needed, went out shopping with my mom and had a lovely time. But around 7 p.m., I started feeling dizzy. I had just flown in from Japan, so I assumed it was just jet lag and fell asleep. 
I woke up in the middle of the night with a high fever and I couldn't lift my head high enough even to puke on the floor. So unfortunately, I puked all over myself, the bed, and my lovely concerned dog. I tried to yell out to my mother, but I didn't even have the strength to do that. Luckily, the sound of me vomiting was enough to wake her up. My mother then carried me to the car and drove me to the emergency room. Once I arrived at the hospital, I was put in the most uncomfortable bed ever and drifted off. I just couldn't stay awake. That's when I saw nurses and doctors around me, injecting me with things and shouting. I remember thinking that it must be serious if a doctor was shouting, as they usually don't show panic. I was lucid enough to laugh internally, thinking, wow, I must really be sick if I don't even freak out over all these injections. And then it happened. I saw my mom crying and I thought, holy shit, this must be for real. And as soon as I thought that, I fell asleep. I say asleep, but I died for exactly two minutes. It really feels like falling asleep, but for me it was beyond peaceful. As someone that was once suicidal, this was actually a horribly dangerous feeling as for the first time I got confirmation that dying wasn't all that scary. I woke up seven days later in the hospital. It took me another seven to start eating and they told me that I more than likely got sepsis from infected tools at the dentist's office. The scariest part was after that happened, I no longer fear dying. So I consciously try to pull myself out of my depression whenever I feel it coming on. But for anyone who's scared that their loved one felt pain in death, I can honestly say for me, it's a very peaceful feeling. From the cancer survivor, I was 15 and had been through about three or four months of chemotherapy. I'd had a nosebleed on and off throughout the day, and then after I went to bed, it just kept on going. I couldn't sleep, just had to keep lying there, mopping my nose and sneezing out these rubbery little blood clots. At about 2 a.m., I started to feel sick, so I reached for the container, as I always have one by my bed because the meds I was on at that time gave me really bad morning sickness, and threw up. It was a thick, dark red. After that, I only remember what happened in short bursts. I think my mom had gotten up to go to the bathroom, and I managed to hit the wall loudly enough for her to hear. She came in, and there was blood everywhere coming out of my nose and mouth, all over the bed and on the walls. Then I remember a paramedic being there. I must have collapsed against the wall after that because next time I came around, I was strapped to a stretcher and they were taking me downstairs. Then I was in the hospital surrounded by about six doctors with these huge lights pointing directly at me. One of the doctors cauterized my nose and I definitely felt that. The doctor who did it was so nervous that he pushed the white hot material right through my septum and I actually still have a hole in my septum today. The worst part of it all, looking back, is how peaceful it was to me. And that's how it felt when I was in the ICU for a few weeks after that, doped up on ketamine and slipping in and out of life. Being asleep was easy. Being awake meant more pain and less dignity. So if you want to know what it's like to be that close to death, it's tempting. It's like wanting to hit the snooze button on your alarm. And maybe you do hit it once or twice. But then you remember that you have to go to work or school and that sleep can wait because you've still got shit to do. All right, we got another accident victim. This one's a little bit different. I almost drowned in a pool when I was five. 
I remember looking up and seeing my mother dismissing the lifeguard because I was only playing and his legs starting to break through the water because he knew better. I can remember with absolute clarity how the water made everything shimmer as I was looking up. And sometimes I see that shimmer as I'm walking around outside or if the light is really, really bright. I can't help but wonder in those moments if my entire life, all my failures, successes, falling in love with a woman, having two children with her, the love of my life cheating on me, is just all inside my head during the last few moments before I died, still in that pool. Wow, that's some deep shit right there. All right, another accident victim. This one's, again, a little bit different. I was in a serious car accident a week before my high school graduation. Without going into all the gory details, I lost so much blood that they declared me dead. Although I do not remember much between the rescue workers extracting me from my car and waking up three weeks later, I do remember feeling very warm and seeing lights. I've always believed it was due to medical lighting, but I'm open to otherworldly suggestions. So, maybe so, maybe not. And an absolutely unreal experience. I was 16 years old and encountered tachycardia for the first time. Went to the emergency room with my mom, not really thinking it was a big deal. I didn't realize how intense the situation was until two cardiologists and several nurses rushed me to what looked like an operating room. Again, I didn't really know the full extent of what was happening. I felt pretty normal and never had a history of heart issues up until that moment. However, my mom worked in the medical field for several decades and I could see the utter fear and concern on her face. Fast forward to the doctors trying to slow my heart down. Last resort was some drug that essentially stops your heart and resets it to, to a normal beat. Right as, they, right as they were giving me the drug, they warned me I might feel a heavy weight on my chest. What an understatement. Well, you know, doctors are good for that. I'm just going to, that was me chiming in. Felt like someone was squeezing all the air and life out of me. Eventually, the room went black and a feeling of peace came over me like I was going to sleep. I didn't see anything good or bad, just emptiness. When I awoke, I assumed only a few seconds had passed. Instead, the drug actually caused my heart to stop for 10 minutes or so and the doctors were trying to revive me. I'm 27 now and two years later, I had a second year a second episode and when they gave me that same drug I didn't pass out but I was forced forcing myself to stay awake because you know what I didn't want to die again and this one's a double feature you know like this one I've died twice medically speaking the first time was due to a motorcycle accident I passed out while cruising along at about 50 miles an hour and I was thrown into a light pole I haven't told my family that I was dead when EMS carted me to the hospital. I only have two clear memories of that event. The first is being upside down. The second is hitting the pole and stopping. And the pain, because it hurt. The only reason I didn't fall asleep was a bizarre moment when I heard someone yelling, Come on, man, get up, get up, get up! And then someone slapping my helmet, which was basically smooshed really hard onto my head. When I opened my eyes, I saw my brother squatting on the pavement next to me. This was really odd because my brother had been dead from an overdose for several years. The only other thing I remember is him glancing at his watch and saying something like, They'll be here soon. 
and then walking away. The second incident, well, I don't really remember much of, but I was stabbed and nearly bled out. I honestly just felt really tired and wasn't connecting the dots that I was dying. Luckily, a cop happened upon me and after I collapsed on the side of the road and called emergency services, who then successfully revived me. I was apparently only gone for like 20 or 30 seconds. With that one, so it doesn't really stick in my memory like the first one did. Interesting, right? I'm just going to say this guy really, I, well, I assume it's a guy, seriously has some bad luck. And coming face to face with death. I was six or seven years old when I got infected by an aggressive strain of salmonella. After two days with a very high fever and nonstop vomiting, my vision began to blur. Suddenly, everything went black. I could hear my parents in the doctor's voice saying that I wasn't going to make it. I heard cries and something like a rattling metallic sound. And then I stopped hearing their voices. After a while, it felt like I was in a dark room and my eyes had started to become used to the lack of light because I started to see some shapes again. I could see the bed, the pillows, and a girl who was sitting on the bed a few inches in front of me. I heard her voice. She told me that she came from a faraway land filled with wonders and amazing things and that I belonged there. Then I started shaking uncontrollably. I vomited again and woke up. Everyone was convinced that I was going to die, but I was feeling much better. Within a week, I actually recovered, but the fever was so high that I actually lost my hair. Later, I told my parents about the strange dream that I had while I was sick, and they told me that for a moment, I got completely limp and my skin started to get very pale. Even the doctor believed that I wasn't going to wake up. My mom told me that maybe the girl I saw in my dreams was death and somehow allowed me to live in exchange for my hair. Nice story, I like that one. We got another suicide story. A few years ago, a doctor took me off my antidepressants and put me on medication that really put my mood all over the place. I would sleep 16 hours a day and could barely function when I was awake. Unfortunately, I was also in a very bad relationship with someone who did not understand or support me emotionally. Essentially, we broke up, and I was somewhat okay at first, but I was so unstable that I broke and started taking handfuls of prescription medications. I took about 140 pills. I called my ex and begged him to come over because I knew that I needed help. I fell asleep soon after he came over. I woke up because of scratching at my window, but I did not investigate. I went to the bathroom and started to have a shower, but threw up in the sink. None of the pills came out. My ex drove me to the hospital, and when we reached the emergency admitting, I had immediately went into seizures. I came to briefly when the doctors were cutting off my clothes, but I went unconscious after that. At some point, I entered a strange, dreamlike state. Things started turning blue and falling away or dissolving. Then eventually, everything went dark. I woke up in the hospital bed two days after I had been admitted. I was in the ICU for another two days before I was sent to a rehabilitation center for three weeks. I'm doing a lot better now, back on proper meds, productive, and pretty happy. I hope that no one hearing this is having suicidal thoughts, but if you are, no, you are not alone. Try to get help and ride out the worst feelings. The hardest thing about waking up was seeing my mom so upset. 
Not to be cliche, but people love you and care about you. You matter, and you are capable of great things. I love the way they ended that one. And an encounter with a strange man in a hat. Here we go. I was about five, in pain from a migraine. My mother tried to calm me down and then gave me a chewable painkiller of some sort. As soon as that thing touched my tongue, I heaved as I had been crying pretty heavily beforehand, and it got caught in my throat. I was clinically dead for over six minutes as they tried to dislodge it, and had it not been for my grandmother frantically running outside to wave down the ambulance they had called, I probably wouldn't be here today. But what I saw, I will never forget. Small golden doors closed to me, light be behind them, but no way in. Next to me, however, stood a man in a top hat, with a long-tailed suit coat, also black. And he has haunted me ever since. And lastly, but not least, in 2005, I broke my radius and my ulna to the point where the back of my hand could touch my bicep. The unofficial report from my doctor was that they had trouble placing the breathing tube and I had flatlined on the table. I obviously had no idea my heart stopped during the surgery, when I woke. but when I woke up, I had memories of floating around with pink bubbles all around me. In a few bubbles were my grandmother, grandfather, uncle, who had all died earlier in 2005, and they just kept saying to me, it's not your time. And with that, my lovely listeners, it's not your time, but it is time to end our episode. And I do thank you for joining me today, and I hope that you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts about what you think about today's episode. You can reach the show, as always, at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, or if you just want to tell me what you think, drop me a line. On that note, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us here on Renegade Talk Radio, and don't forget to tune in next time. See you later, my heathens. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.